and let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And please continue praying for the Thompson family, the Porta Latins, uh, the Lees, others that Justin brought to your attention. Let's pray that God's grace will sustain and help them as uh, they move through these very difficult times. Um, I am under the conviction, um, I, I realize that I, I could be wrong or I could have an incomplete understanding, but I spent weeks explaining to you why I believe that the United States is currently under judgment. I also know there is a strong wing of Christianity that says God never judges anymore. It was all done at the cross. And to say that God judges is to misrepresent God. I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to make the gospel as positive as possible. But I say with humility and sincerity, they're misrepresenting the gospel. They're misrepresenting the God of the Old and New Testament. Um, if you don't believe that God deals with his church, read Hebrews where it talks about chastisement. Read uh, his dealing with five of the seven churches of Revelation. That's not an Old Testament God that was angry. That's the God who is perfect in all his ways. And we have to look at judgment as a possibility. You say, well, why are we under judgment? Well, we've talked about that. We've talked about several things that I think have come to a head. This is subjective. I can't, I can't say thus saith the Lord, but I believe there's biblical principles. I believe we're under judgment for the carelessness that we have had um, toward justice in our land. We've allowed uh, injustice to continue when we've had it in our power to stop it. And that injustice covers several different areas, several different ways. I think America is um, a nation blessed of God, but even nations that are blessed of God can get things wrong. And we need to repent and get those things right. I think we're under judgment for our careless flipping off of God and his word. We have made his word of no value in our society. I, I think we're under judgment because of what we have done to the family uh, and to sexuality. I think we're under the judgment of God um, because of, um, um, I'm, tr I'm trying to think of the best way to say it. Um, let me save that because I'm going to deal with it a little bit as we get into the message. But I gave you four reasons that I felt like we were under um, the judgment of God. And I'm, I'm still amazed at how many people say, no, that can't be. God is not a God of judgment. Um, let me explain something to you. And, and I, I'm, I'm constantly reminded, not by you folks, but, but, but by others uh, and friends um, that are without the church. Um, I, I'm, I'm constantly reminded that uh, God has not given up on America. Loved ones, I don't know any time anybody in this pulpit has ever said that God has given up on America. There's nobody I know of that is any more pro-American 
and, and, and pro-bent toward mercy for America than I am. But you've got to understand that not all judgment is retribution. Not all judgment is wrath. Judgment, there is a judgment when you've come to the end of God's mercy. But I don't believe we're there yet. What we're experiencing is not God's wrath. What we're experiencing is God's chastisement, in my opinion. And uh, you, you chastise those you love in order to bring them to their senses, in order to bring them to repentance. But um, uh, if we don't come to our senses, then we find that judgment continues and it gets worse and worse. So um, I'm, not to, I'm not saying that judgment means that God has given up on America, but... Uh, um, what I, what I do want to say is I think it would do us well while we're going through the correction of the Lord. And I'm not talking about political things. I, I honestly, I think that's the reason some people are having so much trouble putting their arms around everything. They can't interpret anything outside of the election. They, they can't understand this world outside of Democrats and Republicans. And the judgment of the Lord has very little to do with Democrats and Republicans. It has to do with the hearts of people. Uh, because you see, if you think that our problems are solved by elections and politics, which I think are both important, but you've got to understand we're in a nation that is divided right down the middle, uh, depending on what question you ask, maybe a little this way, maybe a little that way. Um, and, and what some people want as the solution for our problem can change every two years. Every two years, the House or the Senate can change. Every four years, the White House can change. It's in a state of constant flux because we're all um, in, a, in a culture, in a society that has turned away from Scripture and has turned away from God. And there's nothing that will return the blessing in favor of the Lord except a return to God. Now, we may argue on what that means and what that looks like, but I want us to go to the book of Jeremiah, and I want to talk to you as succinctly, yet as passionately as I can, about what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. The singular, the singular problem the church has in America today, and I don't know, I'm not sure about other nations, though I suspect it is true in other nations, especially in, in Western Christianity, but I think the biggest problem is that we have become so acclimated to the world that it's difficult to tell what's different about us from the world. Church growth translates into good leadership. I, I don't mean to criticize anyone or any movement, but I am convinced I am convinced, I've wrestled with this for about five years, six years, I am convinced that the church has backslidden to the point that we teach our young men and women how to be good CEOs instead of how to be men and women of prayer. We teach them how to be untouchable leaders instead of accessible shepherds. And we are trying to grow churches based on a consumer mentality. You don't like this, we'll change it. You don't like the way we do things, we'll do it another way. And there's something to be said for being, you know, something that the world is interested in. But we are never called to identify ourselves as totally understandable by the world. 
When the, when the world comes in and sees the presence of God, there's two questions they ought to ask. And if a church is not having this asked, I'm not talking about breeding confusion, but, a, but a, a person that doesn't know the Lord should see what's happening and say, what does this mean? And then the second question, when all is said and done, what shall we do? What shall we do? And when a church is striving so that no one has any questions... When a church is striving that no one needs the help of the Holy Spirit to understand. Nobody asks, what does this mean? Nobody asks, what shall we do? And we've done nothing but produce a show to satisfy people for 59 minutes on a Sunday. God forbid that we should go longer than an hour. And I think the church is by and large in a state of apostasy because of her lack of response to the word and her lack of response to the Holy Spirit. I've said that over, I said this two years ago, that God had so burdened my heart uh, that he said the church in America, every church and every denomination in one form or another is going to have to have five encounters where they deal with five questions of New Testament theology. And we're not going to go over that today. I preached it three times, and I just got a feeling that number four is coming because I think we need to, to look at those things. But we need to ask the question. This is our greatest weakness right now. We have gotten so comfortable in this world that we're not only in the world, but we're of the world. Jeremiah 29 says this, For this is what the Lord says, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. He says 70 years you're going into captivity. The church of Jerusalem was saying, No, God will never allow that to happen. God loves his people. They were saying, like many people today, anything that's negative is of the devil. It's not of the Lord. Finally, somebody made a concession and said, Well, we're going to have to be punished, but just two years, two years is all we're looking at. And Jeremiah insisted 70 years. He said, After these 70 years, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. And here's our, this is our favorite refrigerator verse. But please know before we read it and say, yeah, I got that on my fridge. Please understand it was given to a people that were facing judgment and 70 years of exile. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for prosperity and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will let myself be found by you, declares the Lord. And right now we're in a church culture that says you get the formula right, you get the words right, you can demand the attention of God. And God says, when you get so desperate that you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me. I used to play hide-and-seek with my kids, and I was considerably better at it than they were. But you know what I did? I would find a great hiding place, and when they would look, they would find my rear end sticking out for all to see. Or they would see the top of my head. In other words, it was a great hiding place, but I let myself be found. 
God said, when you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me. Don't mark it down and write a prayer book over it. Don't write it down that you have achieved some high level of spirituality. I've cheated so you could win. I've let you find me. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. That was a promise he gave to Jeremiah. This is what Jesus said while we're going through these tough places in his, what's called his high priestly prayer, his last prayer, private prayer before the crucifixion. He says, Father, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them away from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus knew something that the church often forgets. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are living in an environment that is hostile to our life. And instead of going underwater and trying to grow gills, the only way we can succeed is to have a mask that provides air. See, I can go, it doesn't matter how much time I spend in the water, I'm never going to be able to breathe underwater because that's not my realm, that's not my world. If I want to go underwater and stay underwater, I have to have something that keeps that realm out of me. In lesson one, we pointed out that some struggles we are seeing, uh, we are seeing as the church we, we are seen as the church possessing the promised land. I, I don't think right now is a good time for us to look at the conquering of the land to evaluate our situation. God can take any story and make it applicable to your life. I know that. And I'm not saying I'm not going to preach on possessing the land. That's not what I'm saying. But I think generally when you study things like the possessing of the land, it's God's way of telling us how we overcome to achieve our inheritance, how we fight our personal struggles to find our, our destiny. Um, the battles we face uh, God, as God wants us to become what he do, uh, ordained for us to be as individuals, that's a generalization. But I believe that what I'm finding in my heart over the past three years or so, and I think this is why the Lord has had me in Jeremiah. I read Jeremiah two or three times a year, and it's not because I want to, you know, really impress Jeremiah when I get home. I, I, I just, I'll read it and I'll do some other reading and I'll find him bringing me right back to it. It's been something that I've been living and breathing. And, and I, I want you to understand this. There are some people that say, if it's not a direct promise to us, we can't claim it, we can't, we can't live in it. I think that's wrong. I know what they're trying to say. They're trying to stop people from being sloppy with the word of God. But I also know that the scripture says of itself, all scripture is given and is profitable for instruction, for righteousness, and, and, uh, and, and learning how to live the Christian life. Paul said twice, to the Corinthians, that everything we have in the Old Testament is given to us as examples to learn from. 
So it's not like we're trying to live under an old covenant, but we want to be sure we learn everything that God intends us to learn from that covenant. Um, the word can be made alive, and I, I think this has been abused. I'm, I'm not talking about, we, you know, we need to start living with a rhema word instead of a logos word. Um, th th that's a greatly abused idea that has been around for about 40 or 50 years. But I tell you what is true. The Lagos, the written word of God, is always alive. It's always powerful. It's always true. But there are moments when God takes that word that's already alive and already powerful and already true, and he quickens it to your heart. He gives you a word out of the word. Now, we can't do uh, injustice to the word, but we can understand that God is giving us examples. And um, uh, I, I think what I'm trying to say today, you, you'll need to know this for the next four or five weeks probably. I think a better analogy for the church right now, instead of possessing the land, is living in exile. Is living, we're living, in my opinion, in a post-Christian America. There are those that say America was never a Christian nation. I, I, I believe that is wrong. I believe it's utterly wrong. Uh, we have everything from Supreme Court decisions to original historical documents that tell us we were founded with the idea of, a, of a, the Judeo-Christian ethic. Now, did we live it out well? No, no, not every time. We made big mistakes about slavery. We came two votes away, two votes away from abolishing slavery at our beginning. And because we didn't, we had to pay the price in a horrible civil war. And then even that didn't fix it. We've, we've been paying for it on one level ever since. We, we, we made mistakes with the, the treatment of Native Americans. We, we made mistakes with the internment of Japanese Americans on our western coast during World War II. We've made mistakes, but God has been gracious to at least give us a path that we can correct it or start correcting it. And we've got a lot to be thankful for, and that's because of the Judeo-Christian ethic. But with that being said, I think that we are post-Christian America. I think America has reached her peak religiously and is in decline. Now you say, I don't like, that's not very patriotic. See, that's why Jeremiah went to prison. Jeremiah didn't go to prison for false doctrine. Jeremiah went to prison for treason. He said, how dare, they said, how dare you think that our nation can come under judgment? How dare you think that God would ever chastise us? We are the apple of his eye. And they called it treason. And that's the same thing that's happening in America right now. We're taking spiritual apostasy and we're making it a political matter. We want to reprogram. We want to uh, marginalize. We want to, you know, somebody that believes this is sick. Somebody that believes this is a racist. Somebody that believes this is a socialist or a communist. And our language right now is a language of politics. It's the same thing Jeremiah faced. He went to prison for treason but in actuality, what he was doing was proclaiming the eternal principles of God. Okay, well, I got a few more amens than I expected. The people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah had committed twin sins. They had rejected Rejovah and they had embraced Baalism. The prophet put it this way. He said, there was a time when you were like a young bride on her honeymoon. Everything you wanted to do was to please your husband, but you have committed twin sins, unthinkable sins. You have rejected a living spring and you've traded it for a dry, empty well. And you wonder what is going on. 
in your nation. The land had been lost. The judgment of God was in effect. God was still working through and for the remnant. Now, let me tell you this. Those of you that don't think God judges his people, let me tell you, uh, it's a scriptural pattern. The people of God can suffer just like the people of, of wickedness when judgment comes. But God, as often as not, maybe most of the time, gives them protection. Saul went down at the shipwreck, nearly died, even though it was not his fault, he even had a word from the Lord that this is not a, this, you don't leave port, don't leave port. But God says, even when my people, when, when people won't listen, you may be caught up in that judgment, but I will work with you. I will work for you. Um, the same thing with Joshua and Caleb and Moses. God said, I'm going to wipe out this whole unbelieving generation. And um, he, he said, Moses, you and Joshua and Caleb are the only ones to believe. So I'm going to spare you to go into the land. You say, yeah, they got to go to the land. Yeah, 40 years later, 40 years later. And then Moses didn't get to go after all. There's this thing, the sins of the fathers. Um, I like what Erwin Lutzer said. This is in your notes and I'm moving fast. So just stay with me. The church is to be in the world like a ship is in the ocean. But when the ocean begins to seep into the ship, the vessel is in trouble. Now, this is what John Newton, composer of Amazing Grace and himself, no stranger to storms at sea. This is what he said when a church was divided over political issues. This is what he said. When a ship is leaky and a mutinous spirit divides the company on board, a wise man would say, my good friends, while we are debating, the water is gaining on us. We had better leave the debate and go to the bump, uh, pumps. Now, what I want you to understand, loved ones, is that there is a fine line between the judgment of the righteous and the judgment of the sinful or the judgment of the wicked. It, it's easy to cast all judgment as this or to disregard all judgment because of this. The Pharisees were unable by and large to distinguish between the two. They were proponents of judgment. They were pro proponents of Bible verses. But Jesus says, you don't understand that I'm talking about you. You are the ones I'm talking about. He spoke to the Sadducees. He says, you are in error because you don't know the scripture. You don't know the power of God. All you know is religious froth. He spoke to the Pharisees, you blind leaders, you struggle at a gnat and swallow a camel. And when you look at our nation today, it's amazing what we get stumped over. Common sense, or as Justin says, used to be common sense, uncommon sense issues. We, we, stump, we shut down laws, we shut down government, we shut down everything over a simple principle, but then something that is ridiculous will take it in like we're swallowing a camel. Now here's the rub. We are commissioned to live at peace with the world, the people of the world, while at the same time we rebel against the world, the system. You see, that's the fine line that Christians are called to walk, but very few do it. I'm, I'm not just, you say, Pastor, you're kind of bothering me. Well, I'm talking about those other people, not, not us. 
We are commissioned to live at peace with the world while at the same time to rebel against the system. Now, let's, I want to talk to you for just a minute about exile. I want you to understand when we think of exile, the Jews going into exile, we think of being, you know, having to move from Casey to West Columbia. You know, it's just, it's just a little, little change of scenery. We might have lost our house, but we found a house over here and everything's basically the same. Not true. Not true. They lost their land. They lost their king. And this was the toughest thing of all. They lost their temple. But on top of losing the land, the king, the temple, they also lost their culture. Attempts were made to rob them of their religion or at least give them an adulterated expression of it. All of this occurred between the years 606 B.C. and 586 B.C. And when they finally went into captivity in 586, they were told that for 70 years they would reap the results of forsaking the Lord. You know what's being said in America right now? It'll get better. Just let the stock market climb back up. Just let midterm elections come. Just let whatever happens happen. But this is 70 years. Do you realize that almost everybody, almost everybody that heard this, 70 years, I'll bring you back. Do you realize that almost everybody that heard it were not coming back? Let's say that we had a sentence of judgment for 70 years of exile. I'm never going to be brought back. And not unless I live to be as old as Isaac. I'm never coming back. Do you know, 70 years, my children are not coming back. My grandchildren will. My great-grandchildren will. It, it's easy to say, well, I'm, I'm going to be in the hospital a couple of weeks, but I'll be okay. Seventy years without your land, without your home, without your king, without your temple, without your culture. They were souls in conflict. This is in your outline if you're trying to keep up with me. There was a common depression there was anger at others, even some anger directed at God himself. This had been an attack on their culture. The Babylonians went after the hearts and minds of the children. They went after the worldview of the Jews through an aggressive educational reorientation. They had to learn the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. They lost their connection to everything Jewish. How would you like it if the system was so intent on you changing into something else, they took your name away and gave you another one. So Daniel becomes Belteshazzar. Hannah becomes Shadrach. Mishael becomes Meshach. Azariah becomes Abednego. And remember, this wasn't done to these four men alone. This was done to an entire generation. This was done to thousands upon thousands of Jews that were taken into exile. And now here's something I don't think we ever understand when we read the Bible, but this was the Babylonian mindset. Jehovah was seen as the God who lost. You have Jehovah, but he lost. He couldn't defend your city. He couldn't defend your temple. He was the God who couldn't keep his people safe. He was the deity who couldn't save Jerusalem. You've lost the promise to the Davidic line. God said there will always be a line of David that will one day rule the world and the utter collapse of these promises connected to it. They are nothing anymore. The, the last of the line of David is blinded and killed. The last of the line of David sits at the 
the table at the mercies of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He's not in charge anymore. Boy, you're so thrilled to hear this, I know. On top of all of this, they were mocked by their captors. Now, let, let me tell you what was going on. They had been betrayed by people within the system. And they had been betrayed by people outside the system. You ever want to know why the Jews hated the Edomites so much? Uh, you know, I, I, my, my brother that just went to be with Jesus, whenever he wanted to cast the ultimate insult on somebody, he'd, he'd call them an Edomite. You know, those Edomites. Uh, but what the Edomites would do, the Edomites, when the Jews would try to escape from Jerusalem, <clears throat> the Edomites would be waiting outside the town. They would capture those trying to escape and sell them as slaves. God told them, you're going to have great judgment on this. So they hated the Edomites. Um, and, and let me tell you what we know happened. Women were raped. Um, men were brought into captivity either as slaves or if they were intelligent and had special gifts, they were forced to come into the uh, service of the government. And many of them were made eunuchs because not, not all of them, we don't know that all of them were, but we know that was standard practice in a conquering nation. When you brought a man into the palace, you didn't want him messing with the king's women, so you castrated him. This is what they were up against. Do you know we have from secular sources that they would take the children of the people of Israel, little babies, they'd take them by the heels and slam them against the rocks, dash their brains out. And this is what was being done to Israel. And that's why these people were angry at those who stole our country who stole our culture, who stole our way of life. It's an understatement. Let me read you one of the Psalms that they wrote. They put this in our book of praise. You know, we, we, we'd sit Pastor Glenn down and say, well, you can't sing songs like this. <laughs> Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered home. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. See, when we read this, we think of somebody saying, oh, you Jews are so musical. Sing us some of your lovely songs. No, what they were doing is saying, hey, sing us your songs we've heard you sing when things were going better. Hey, what's that song about God's able to deliver? What's that song about God is powerful above all other gods? Why don't you sing a verse of that for us, for us while you labor away at the task we've given you? Our captors, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Pull out your repertoire of worship and, and praise anthems. Let's see if it works now for you. And they said, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy, remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Remember what they did to us. Can you imagine singing that during praise and worship? <laughs> Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundation. 
And then they turned from the Edomites to the Babylonians. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. You say, yeah, but what's the rest of the psalm say? They came around. That's the end of the song. Blessed are those who take your babies and dash their brains out on the rocks. And then the minister of music just turns and sits down. Everybody else is waiting, but I will forgive. We will forget. No, they, they had, and by the way, let me tell you about this. Psalms is not a book about praise and victory all the time. It's a book of human emotions and Psalms shows us when we're high, when we're low. And it even gives us these songs that end on a bad note. Now, I want to tell you, if that's not hatred, it will do till hatred arrives. So how do we live? How do we live? If, Pastor, you are right, how do we live while we endure this time of judgment? How do we live while we look for God to change the culture? And bring us back to him. And I'm not talking about elections. I'm not talking about elections. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about the changing of the heart of America. What can we do? Well, we can resort to isolation. But isolation is just surrender. Isolation says we'll go off the grid. We'll hide. But Jesus prayed that we would be separate from the world while living in it. In fact, Paul taught this. I don't think I've, I think I've got the, the outline in another sermon. Oh, is it here too? Paul, Paul said the only way that we can be totally separate from the world is leave it. To those that wanted to just withdraw from the world and the horrors of Rome, Paul said, hey, the only way you can be separate from the horrors of this society is to leave this world and go to heaven. I do believe we are to be a counterculture that, will, that we will embrace and teach to our children, just like our video today said. In some things we have a choice, in some things we're not given choices. We are at a stage right now, loved ones, where we need to learn to make godly decisions and be willing to suffer for following Christ. Isolation is not an option. If I could, I would gladly move someplace out of the culture and see my generations grow up there, but I can't. Now, even if I could, it's not a permanent solution. Here's the second option we've got. We can assimilate. We can just say, well, you know, we've got to love the world and we, we, we can just be like them, but know in our hearts that Jesus is Lord. That's called contamination. We, we, if we just assimilate, then we just take in the toxins of the world. And uh, loved ones, I, I'm, I know I'm sounding like an old-timey clothesline preacher, but let me tell you this. The church has got to wake up and decide that we're going to judge what we watch, where we go, how we dress, and how we talk. There's got to be something different about us. I know that we are born again. That's not the problem. The problem is we need to act born again. What is there about us that makes us or distinguishable from the current culture? Infiltration. 
Infiltration, that's our option. That means influence. Now we're not gonna withdraw because that's at best only a short-term fix. We're not going to assimilate because this world is not our home. And our goal is not to look more and more like the world. Our only option is to influence, to infiltrate. We live in a world without accepting its contaminating factors. We learn to grasp the tension. Jesus said, occupy till I come. And then he also said, nothing will be entirely set right till he returns. And right now the church is divided. The the Protestant church is largely divided. Those that even believe in the return of Christ are divided into two camps. You've got those over here that say that uh, they take verses like, um, you know, what you bind and what you loose will be bound and loose. They, They take all of these verses and they take that set of verses and they say, our job is to rule the culture. Then you've got others over here that say, nope, it's just going to get worse and worse till Jesus comes. And loved ones, I want to speak to the assemblies of God. Anybody in the assemblies of God that's listening to me, we have taught a pre-millennial um, return of Christ, which is true. But we've also taught a pre-tribulational rapture. And there's a case for that. There, you can make a case. I'm not saying that is wrong. But I'll tell you the baggage that the pre-tribulational rapture view carries with it is we don't have to worry about the world at all. Because just when it gets bad enough, Jesus is going to come and take us out. And we have abdicate, abdicated our responsibility to the lost. We basically said to the lost, well, just go on to hell. That's your problem, not mine. Oh, I got the devil by the tail on a downhill drag, and I'm singing tie-i-yippee-i-yay. <laughs> Loved ones, something is horribly broken in us when our, only, when our only comfort is that the world will have to go through hell, but I won't. But we must learn the difference. We must we must learn what it means to be uh, salt and light, but we also need to learn that it's not until Jesus returns that the power of the enemy will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Now there's, there's differences we can make. We ought to make society the best that we can. We ought to seek light instead of darkness. We ought to seek life instead of death. And, and you can, I mean, we ought to always be fighting for pro-life. We ought to always be fighting for justice. We ought to always be fighting for the word of God as preeminent in our society. We ought to always be fighting for those things. But we also need to understand this world is not our home. They hated Jesus. They will hate us. And I'm afraid we're being told to confess and decree a world of utopian bliss when there's a very real enemy that hates us and will only be overthrown by Jesus. So what do we do? I'm glad you asked. There's five things you need to know. What do we do when we're in Babylon? Here's number one, calm down. Calm down, settle in. The false prophets were predicting a short stay, but God was saying there is no quick fix. They first said it won't happen. Then they said, oh, it'll only be a couple of years. But Jeremiah said, you're not listening. Seventy years. Daniel in Babylon said the same thing. We have to understand when God begins to work on the life of an individual, a family, or a nation, there's the dynamic of repentance. 
God will apply pressure until repentance is accepted or rejected. There's the dynamic of God's timing. What we think we learn in seven days, God says it may take seven years, it may take 70 years. There's the dynamic of exposure. God is exposing the wickedness of this world. God is exposing the wickedness of this system. For five years, right up till October 30th, we prayed daily for five years, God, expose lies and liars. God, let truth rise up. God, let the church wake up and God, let America know what to do. We've understood when we started praying that we didn't know how long we were going to pray it. We prayed it for almost a little over five years. God, expose what needs to be exposed that is evil. Rise up with truth. Help Americans to know what we ought to do and let the church be what she ought to be. Now, God has lifted that prayer assignment from us as a church. Not, I don't know why, I don't understand that. But what I felt like the Lord told me is that pray it through October and then I'll give you new prayer directives by the spring. I don't know what that meant. Don't read something into it and don't put words in my mouth. I'm just saying God says you've got to let me expose what needs to be exposed there's the dynamic of, and here's, here's a tough one for you. You ready for this one? I want everybody to listen to this if you haven't been listening. Wake them up, wake them up. There's the dynamic of some things that must be. There's some things that must happen. Jesus said when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, you hear all this, he says, don't be upset. These things must happen. Now, we, we are trying to confess everything away, but some things must happen. You say, and I've had some people that I've witnessed to say, well, if they must happen, I'm just doing the will of God by sinning, you know. I'm just going to keep sinning because he said there's going to be a great falling away. I'm just fulfilling his word. Oh, baloney. Let's, let's step up to the plate and own where we are. What we have to do is concentrate on fulfilling those other verses. God said, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. You'll be light and not darkness. You'll be salt and not corruption. You'll be life and not death. No, no, no. Some things must be. Don't, don't feel that God's lost control. Some of the worst things that you're reading about in the news, you know why they're happening? Because God said they must happen. They must happen. Because God has a plan. He's working. And some things have to happen that if we had our way, they would never happen. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah. Okay, this is what he says to people going in exile. You guys still with me? This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, those of you that I've sent to exile, here's what I want you to do. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city <coughs> to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for the city because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You know what that Hebrew actually says? It's shalom shall become your shalom. God tells us that some of his greatest work requires us to play the long game. Loved ones, if you agree with me that we are in judgment, 
<coughs> instead of trying to find someone to blame, instead of threatening to take up arms, instead of doing everything your flesh tells you to do, God says, settle down, calm down and infiltrate that society. Pray for it because if you can impact that society, it will be a step in the right direction for all of the earth. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are reminders that God calls us to obedience, not success, at least not as the world measures it. Now here's number one, okay? Settle down. Here's number two. When you're in Babylon, focus on your family. Focus on your family. What does he say now in verse five? He says, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, the long haul. Verse six, he says this, take wives, father, sons, and daughters, Take wives for your sons, give your daughters to husbands so that they may give birth to sons and daughters and grow in numbers there and do not increase. I want to tell you that the abortion industry in America has made us believe that the more children we have, the more inconvenienced we will be. Not a single amen, just a couple of groans. Well, at least thank God for a couple of groans. You say, but pastor, we can't afford large families. Loved ones, we can afford anything that life throws us. It means we have to adjust. It means you may drive a Volkswagen instead of a town car. It may mean you eat a lot of ground beef instead of a lot of steak. I'm telling you, I speak emphatically against the lie that has been put upon America that our children are a liability. Our children are a burden to be carried. Loved ones, it's, your child is not an inconvenience. It's the building of a generation. And I'll tell you this, the reason Europe is going Muslim in certain areas is because the Muslims understand about having large families more than Christians do. This is, this is the, I, never mind. And loved ones, we need to understand, I appreciate godly teachers in public education. I appreciate moderate school districts and administrators, but we are in an age where we need to have big families and we need to be more and more open to alternative educational models. We need to stop letting the culture physically and spiritually and morally marginalize us out of existence. I want to tell you, I know that every old guy talks about in my day, but let this old guy talk to you about in my day. America has changed. America has moved into a post-Christian era. When I was in public school, I learned far more memory verses in public school than I ever learned in church. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, I've told you this, Ms. Dahlgren, that teacher that prayed for us every single day and gave us a Bible devotion every single day, she called us around her. We went up around that precious old lady and grabbed her legs and grabbed her arms and messed her hair up. And she prayed for us to have the peace of God during the threat of nuclear war, the, the peace of God that only comes through knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And then she sat us down on the floor around her and explained how we could know Jesus was our Lord and Savior. She'd be fired if not arrested in the culture we're in today. We need to learn how to deprogram our children from the toxicity of this culture. 
Um, at, at the very least, I told you about my friend from Russia that talked about the hard years and his wife called them later the dark years. But she said we would stay up all night during a, co a communist regime. And I thank God we're not there. But she said we would stay up all night to unteach what our kids had been taught that day in school. We need to learn to be proactive instead of angrily reactive. We need to understand legal alternatives. God was effectively saying, you no longer have your temple, but I will bless your homes as a place of my presence. You no longer have your temple, but your home will be a place of worship and instruction. Seek my presence and ask for my wisdom. I will always be near you even when the temple is not. And guys, I want to say this. Again, we don't have to have the discussion about politics and how important it is, but I do want to point out something to you. The culture of a nation is one back, one home at a time. One home at a time. And that's why we need to get serious about evangelism. That's why we need to get serious about infiltrating our neighborhoods with the grace and the peace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, when you're in Babylon, settle down. Let your family be your top priority. God will turn your house into the temple. Number three, when in Babylon, serve the community. Oh, pastor, I'll serve them. I'll serve them all right. He says in verse seven, seek the welfare for the city. Pray for the city. Loved ones, I know a lot of Christians. I've fallen into that trap myself where I was so vigorous and so um, zealous in standing for right, but I didn't love those that opposed me. I didn't love the lost. But God said through Jeremiah, if you will bring shalom to the city, the shalom of the city will bleed over into your life as well. That means we serve the community, we influence the community, we run for office, we vote, we join the PTA, we coach Little League, we pick up trash along the sides of the road, we do anything we can to raise the level of life in the community. Here's number four. When you're in Babylon, pray. Pray. That's, that's what he said. He says, pray to the Lord for it in verse seven. Pray to the Lord for it. This is the path of love. Pray for the city systematically, fervently, compassionately. Justin is going to be giving us in, uh, what, a week or two, seek, the, seek God for the city. And it's a 21 days plan of praying for our city. And we will be fulfilling what Jeremiah told to the exiles. Seek the welfare for uh, the city. Pray for the city. And <clears throat> it will keep us on the path of love. I want to tell you something, loved ones. Uh, my concern with our present president, my concern is along several lines because I differ with him politically, but that's not, that's not God's word. So it's over here. But something that is moral, not political, I, I struggle with his position on abortion. I struggle with it. Now, don't, you know, 
don't get mad with me, those of you that are Biden supporters, because I, I probably, if you, if you just had a list, I struggled more with Donald Trump on some things than I do Joe Biden. Somebody said it this way, um, Joe Biden is like the uncle that gives, uh, rents a big boat and everybody go on a cruise, and Donald Trump's like the guy that owns the boat and fusses at you for not knowing how to sail it, you know. I mean, it was, it, it's, it, we, have not, we have not been overcrowded with desirable perfections. But I struggle with his position on abortion. I struggle with our government's position on abortion. And about a week, about two or three weeks before the election, I said, Lord, I feel, I think that Joe Biden might win this. I think he might win this. And I've tell people to pray for your leader, pray for your president. And I've always been able to pray for every president that I've lived under since I was old enough to pray, whether I agreed with his policies or not. I said, Lord, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with this. Help me know so that I don't waste six months trying to get to the point where I can pray for a president with whom I disagree. And I was praying about it for a few days and I was going, just looking up some news articles and uh, an image popped up and he said, can you pray for this man? And I looked at the caption and I only saw part of the caption, but it was a man, a young man with two small boys at a baseball or football game, I forget, with them huddled around him and him loving on them. And he said, can you pray for this man? And I said, I can always pray for a daddy and his boys. And then I made the mistake of reading the rest of the caption. It was Joe Biden when his two boys were little fellas. One of them's dead now. The other one is Hunter, the one in all the controversy. And the Lord spoke to me. And, and loved ones, I know this is tough for some of you. And I don't want to argue with you about it. But I realized that God was doing something very special for me. God was showing me that there is that picture of everyone. And then there's another picture that fits our purposes. And the Lord spoke to me that day and he said, if you can remember to pray for this man the way you would have prayed for him, a, boy, a man with two little boys, he said, I can hear your prayers and I can answer them. Now, I know some of you don't like that. You say, well, the only picture I've got of him, he's got horns. Well, I, 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 know, I know that political images are very hard to deal with. But loved ones, I, I, I really thought President Trump would win. But as I got closer, I just had this annoying thing, what if? And I want to tell you, you say, well, and what good has that done you? Well, while some of you are so mad you can't see straight, you're cussing, you're fussing, you're cursing, and you're doing it in the name of Jesus, I've been able to wrap my head around praying for a man that I disagree with on most of life. But I see him as a man Jesus died for. I see him as a man who needs prayer. And you're the ones developing ulcers, not me. And I'm going to pray. I'm not going to, his views matter but I don't pray out of hate. I don't pray out of dysfunction. You say, well, I just think it's going to ruin us. Well, it might be. But I don't have to hate someone because I disagree with them. And remember, some things happen when we pray that do not happen if we do not pray. I'm going to finish this message on the way out. And uh, 
Let me end on a more positive note. When in Babylon, remember God's promises. Remember God's promises. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed, I will come and fulfill my promise because I know the plans I have for you. They're to give you hope, not helplessness, hope and a future. You will call upon me and then I will gather you from all the nations where I banished you. I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And some of them said 70 years, I'll be dead. Some of you are saying, Pastor, I, all that's wonderful, but I mean, what about right now? Settle down. Pray for the city. Be light in darkness. You say, well, what if I die here? Probably you are. We're all probably going to die on this earth. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but there's a better an average chance that we're all going to die in this mess called culture. But the question is, what about our children? What about our grandchildren? What about our great-grandchildren? Now, here are the Christian life lessons. Three things. What unlikely, and can I say this, probably unwanted tools have we been given for these last days? God has given us some tools and we don't want them is, is the problem. <laughs> we don't want them. I remember when I was a kid and I had some yard work that was particularly onerous to me. And my granddaddy bought for me a gift that I thought was a slap in my face. He brought me a brand new yard rake. He thought he was doing me a favor because he knew what we had was just pretty well worn out. But I viewed it as, I don't want this. I, I don't want this gift. God does that to us sometimes. He gives us gifts that we don't even want and do everything we can to not use them. But here they are. Number one is desperation. God has blessed you and me with desperation. Desperation is often what brings us to health, safety, and even destiny. I remember getting a bad medical report. I didn't want it. I, 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 was, I, was, I was afraid. I was hurt. I was angry. And as I prayed about it, the next day the Lord spoke to me and said, you don't believe it now, but because of this, you will live longer. And I said, well, then you need to talk to my doctor because that's not the way he talks about this thing. This is not my friend. I mean, it wasn't something that was going to kill me. It wasn't a terminal cancer or anything like that. But the Lord said, because of this, you will live longer. And when I began to talk to the doctor and began to talk about things that I knew I needed to change about my lifestyle and eating and things like that, you know what I realized? I, I, I think I'm going to live longer. But... The only, the only, you say, well, why did you make those changes? Well, it's because you're such a disciplined man, Pastor. No, I was scared to death. I was desperate. Some of us do nothing until we either hurt enough or learn enough. It's called desperation. That's why the psalmist said, Lord, you've let men ride over our backs as plowmen. God says sometimes the way he treats us, we feel like we are down and then somebody has come along with a multi-tongued plow to just plow 
us open and rip us open. But he said, out of that, you have brought hope and you've brought prosperity. So the first tool you have is desperation. The second tool, boy, you're going to love this one. If you love desperation, you'll love this one, is helplessness. Helplessness. Now you say, I, don't, I just don't believe that's of the Lord. That's because when I say helplessness, you hear hopelessness. It's not hopelessness. It's helplessness. Paul says the defining moment of his deeper spiritual life was when he had come to the point because of a thorn in the flesh. He said, when I finally understood that when I am at my weakest, that's when I am at my strongest. Helplessness is your friend. And here's the last thing, risky living, risky living. When you find yourself in a position like either going into the promised land or a position like Babylon, you find that one of the greatest tools God gives you is the opportunity for risky living. Now, I'm not talking about foolishness. I know a lot of people that do foolish things and call it faith. That's not what I'm talking about. But let me put it to you this way. Peter never stepped out of the boat until Jesus told him to come. You say, well, what was so risky about that? Jesus told him to come. Well, you have to also notice that Jesus never told Peter to come until he asked. There's this dance of the spirit called risky living where we know not to do anything until Jesus tells us to do it. But we also know unless we take an opportunity to open the door, he's not going to tell us to. It's, it's not an easy lesson to learn. There's not a lot of examples. But there are sometimes you're in a boat and you say, well, I'm going down, but this is the safest place to be. But something rises up in you and you say, Lord, if there are some other options, speak to me. Maybe I could come to you. And it's then that Jesus says, come on. You see... A lot of times we only do what we do because Jesus tells us, and there's nothing wrong with that, believe me. But sometimes Jesus wants to know if you just are willing to take a chance. Lord, heal my daughter. And Jesus gave a political answer. He said, I'm only sent to the house of Israel. Israel's got to get straight first. She was a Gentile woman. And she knew it was right. She said, that's true, Lord, that's true. That's true. I know that's true. You're right. But then she took a risk. But even the dogs get to eat crumbs that fall from the table. And Jesus turns with a smile and says, yes, she's got it. Now go home. Your daughter is well. It's the dance of the spirit. It's called risky living. You know what? Right now we are so angry. I, 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 I can't count on my fingers. The number of people that I know love the Lord, they love the Lord, but their attitude is, I just wish he'd come and take me to heaven. I don't want to be here. Loved ones, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but you have been born for this moment. You have been born for this moment. You say, well, I'm just a, I'm just a teenager. I'm a, I, everything's being dashed. What did he tell the teenagers to do? Keep your eyes open for a husband. Keep your eyes open for a wife. I've told you before, get married, have lots of kids, firstborn son named Stephen. 
He says, overwhelm the culture with your presence. But this is so important. Make sure that you are of another world. Titus 2 is the verse I'll leave you with. For the grace of God has appeared. Is this in your notes? The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, this culture. And to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. What do we do in this present age? We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Loved ones, we are waiting, knowing that redemption is coming and we live apart from the world. We love it. We serve it. We, we pray for it. We do everything we can to make America the best place on planet earth. We do the best that we can. But at the end of the day, we do it because we know that we have a better world that's waiting. If I caved into pressure, I would pre create a series of sermons that was something like how to be happy and have all your needs met when everybody else is acting like idiots. But you know, the best thing I can do is tell you this. This world is not your home. This world is not your home. This system is not what you were made for. So stop using the weapons of our anger to fix it. Stop dressing like the world. Stop watching what the world watches. Stop listening to what the world listens to because you are a peculiar people. Whenever I was growing up and we said, boy, I just feel so out of step with the world, that was the verse we used. Well, you're, you're a peculiar people. Well, I, it wasn't a complimentary thing to be called peculiar, you know. But it doesn't mean peculiar as strange, even though that's how the world will interpret it. It means peculiar as valuable beyond expression. Valuable beyond expression. Valuable beyond expression. It was said that in ancient times when the king heard disputes and complaints and had to make judgments that a, a king was trained to hold in his hands precious stones. And you would see him maybe caressing them or touching them, moving them around. And you thought, what is going on? He, I need him to listen to my problem, not pray, play with these stones. But this is what that old tradition went to. The king was reminded, you have the riches of the kingdom. This problem is not all there is. This weakness is not the extent of your strength. Remember while you navigate king through this world that you have a kingdom that's not seen in this room. And loved ones, God is trying. And I believe this is his agenda for the church.
I know there is this, 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 and this, and we need to tend to all of these things. But right now, the first thing we need to do is understand the kingdom that we represent, understand that what the spirit is that we are. Uh, you see, a lot of times we can love Jesus. We can even have great power and not understand what's going on. What did Jesus say to his disciples? I think it was James and John. I think it was James and John. It's probably why they're called sons of thunder. Uh, they went into a town that wasn't receiving Jesus. And what did they say? They say, Lord, we, we've tasted a little power. We know what Elijah did. These people aren't receiving you. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy the Democrats or destroy the Republicans or destroy this or destroy that or the communists or the socialists or the fascists? Do you want us to call down fire? And Jesus didn't say, uh, let's hold off till after midterms and then I may get you to call down fire. He didn't say, um, keep the fire burning, but let's don't use that yet. Jesus went right to the heart of the problem. He looked at him and this is what he said. You don't understand the spirit you are of. I think that meant two things. He was saying, you don't understand that you are better than that. You don't understand you are of a different spirit. And he was also saying, I think, do you really think calling down fire is going to solve the problems of Israel? No. See, most of us, our problem isn't that we don't love Jesus. It's not even that we don't have a great prayer life. It's not even that we lack power. The problem is we don't understand the spirit we're of. And that's the marching order for the church. Get before him and let our whole system evolve out of the kingdom of heaven. Father, I, I'm done. Please help us. Lord, I've begged you to help me. Help me, Lord. I, I get tired. I get weary. I get judgmental. I get angry. Uh, Lord, some things drive me to a clenched fist. Some things drive me to tears. But Lord, I've got to remember. I've got to remember what spirit I am of. Whether I'm praying for a president, it doesn't matter if I agree with him or disagree with him. Probably most presidents, we've got a little of both. But Lord, what matters is what spirit I pray out of. What spirit am I praying out of? Father, I'm asking you to make us an exception to the rule. Make us a church that understands not only agendas, but understands spirit that drives us. Father, I pray most of all, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, God, please touch their hearts today and before they leave the chapel or they leave the sanctuary, before they go to lunch, if they're away from here, I ask that they would open their hearts and ask Jesus to become the Lord of their lives. Now, if you're watching at home, there's a number that'll be coming up on your screen. People are waiting to receive your call. They'd love to pray with you. If you're in Brown Chapel, um, uh, who's, who's leading in Brown? Glenn, Pastor Glenn will, will give you directions on where to go and receive prayer in Brown Chapel. Right here, Justin has said, if you want to come forward and then just go out that door, you, you could, I guess, go out 
and come down that hallway. Either way, the hallway is reserved for you. If you want Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there are people there. They're moving there right now. They'd be glad to pray with you. Or if you have needs other than salvation, you need healing or wisdom or whatever, we're, we're, we're here to help. But Father, I'm asking for the supernatural power of the Lord Jesus to cover us. Cover us. Cover us, Lord Jesus. Cover us. And may the Spirit of God breathe life. And may we be filled with the Holy Spirit and act out of spiritual direction. In Jesus' name we pray. I love you. God bless you. Be here Wednesday night as Pastor Corey continues his lessons. And uh, I'll see you next Sunday, Lord willing. God bless you.